Today's guest is Julie McNamara, and she's appearing in uh, Wolverhampton next week, the 26th of October. And what are you appearing in? show called Pigtails. Pigtails. So what's, what's that about? And tell us a bit around it. Actually, I'll tell you the whole story. Um, it was commissioned by Oval House Theatre and Jackson's Lane Theatre for one of the first exposure festivals of disability arts in London. Um, it was semi-autobiographical piece. The theme that year was body, culture and identity. And I wanted to do something completely different. And me being me, I had to be landscapes of the mind, but also I wanted to firmly embed in the script the social model of disability, i.e. I'm not just talking about people with unusual shapes, you know, and difference being written across the body as if the cane, uh, marker cane or what have you. Um, I wanted to write something that speaks of how people disable us through attitudes, through... Fear of difference, actually. The whole thing is a metaphor around fear of difference, and it's about a little girl who's raised as a boy in a warring Catholic Protestant family raised in Liverpool that actually come from Ireland on a boat ticket and they're disappointed with their lot, dispossessed of culture and country, and they kind of implode with violence. It's a bit of a mad jamboree, really, in five short stories, five little vignettes around the kids' finger tweaking I think it's a toe tweaking rhyme actually this little piggy went to market isn't it well I'd have said it was a, a hand one actually oh is it I would have said that but ah. you know that's because I'm disabled and they probably did it on my hands so what are you saying toes? about people with no hands Paul <laughs> let's leave Matt Fraser out of this he always he always comes back to him doesn't he yeah exactly <laughs> actually oh, let's have a pop at Matt so is it, is it a comedy it's a dark tale, but it has very funny moments in it. It's kind of woven together with comic monologues. Um, yes, you'll find it funny. <laughs> and the audience will find it funny, not just me. Do you need to know a bit about disability kind of politics to get into it? No, not no. at all. No, it sneaks at you coming from the edges. Mm -hmm. And do you sing in it? Yes, I do. You do. Yeah. And or, to be frank, I don't sing in my voice, Paul. I sing in the characters' voices. Mm. So the father sings, mm. the mother sings, mm. and at the end, Pig sings. And it's just you on stage, but you play all the characters. Yeah, I'm a bit of a megalomaniac. Uh, <laughs> I've never heard that about you before. <laughs> I don't believe a word. <laughs> and... and how autobiographical is it? Because were you brought up a Catholic? Are you from Liverpool? I am from Liverpool. I well, actually, to be fair, I'm not from Liverpool city centre. I'm from the One-Eyed City. I was born in Birkenhead. Birkenhead. But a lot of people don't know Liverpool, so it's always been easier to say, "Yeah, I'm from Liverpool." But actually, anyone from Liverpool will go, "No, you're not. <laughs> you're from the Woolly Backs." So is that the Wirral? Yeah, that's the Wirral. Yeah. Oh, so very much like Liz Carr, in fact. A couple oh, of Wirralians. She comes from the posh end. Don't <laughs> listen to her. <laughs> well, no, she's never said that. She's just said she's a Wirolian, so that makes you a Wirolian as well. Oh, I know. We come from the one-eyed city. It's a bit different. <laughs> Birkenair was named after the body snatchers. <laughs> so everybody out there is a Catholic, is it? That's, that's my impression of No, the... not really. My mum's Protestant. Really? Yeah. My dad's Catholic, but we were raised with his own fire and brimstone. Uh, really? Yeah. So you're not a Catholic anymore? Is no, that safe to no say? I'm a recovering Catholic, a recovering but I think Catholic. you'll find most people who've been through any kind of... Surely you're, surely you're a survivor, because you never recover from it, surely. I think you're right there, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm a survivor then. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and how, how, how long have you been doing this, this Pigtails? Because you've also got something called Pig Sisters. Or... I've got Pig Sister. Um, Pigtails I've been doing, this will be its fifth year, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And um, it's its last flight because it did really well in Australia, New Zealand, Ireland. Um, it's about to go to the first queer arts festival in the north of Ireland. That'll be a laugh if mm. we make it back. It will indeed. Um, and, and I think it's time to put Pig to bed after that. Although having said that, Paul, I've just had an offer to go to Canada with it, mm. and it'll be three different festivals over there. So I'm kind well, you, of you could put it to bed in England. 
yes. and just travel the world with it. Well, or I could step right out of it and get somebody else to play all the parts. That would be good. That would you be know, good. I think it's a really challenging piece of work mm. for somebody to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and who originally funded it then? Was it the Arts Council gave you the money to do this? Arts Council, and it came through Oval House Theatre and Jackson's Lane Theatre under the umbrella of Exposure Festival. And is Exposure, because Exposure was a kind of disability art kind of festival, wasn't it, in London? Yeah. Is I mean, it still it was, going? Ooh, I have information I'm not supposed to leak out in this context. However, <laughs> it was Pat Place's baby originally. Mm. Although, to be fair to Pat, I mean, you know, she's a disabled practitioner herself. But she would have said that actually that was led very much by a mixture of non disabled and disabled people at the helm at Jackson's Lane Theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, but she fought furiously for that to be a disability led arts festival. And it wasn't, and so it's going to go. Well, it's been hitting the walls for the last two years, you mm. know, because when Pat stepped out, mm. she took over London Disability Arts Forum um, 18 months ago now. When she stepped back there, it was completely, you know, left to the wolves, basically, mm. who tore it to shreds. Mm, mm. And, and so uh, talking about LDEF, you used to be the boss at LDEF. I'm the artist formerly known as LDEF. <laughs> Ah, oh, that's so true of many disability arts organisations. Isn't it, eh? <laughs> Honest to God. <laughs> Listen, I did what I could. I gave them a two-year exit strategy mm. and I served two years' notice. Mm. But you know what it's like? If a job has grown into the shape of Paul Dark mm. or if it's grown into the shape of Julie McNamara, when you step out, the risk of that stack of dominoes falling is pretty strong. Mm. Mm-hmm. So would you say you're a very strong character? Yes, and and do you, and that's a good thing in the disability arts situation? Well, I'm not sure, you see, because if we'd had other young disabled people coming through, I really wanted to train up Vicky Lucas, you see. Mm. I really did want to train her into my boots. I hope she's listening mm. or hears about it along the line because uh, she knows that. Um, so why didn't you? We didn't get the funding to do that. You didn't get that and funding. actually, to be fair to Vicky, I think she felt she wasn't ready to take that yet. Mm. But, you know, in four or five years' time, she would have absolutely flown with the artistic director job at the helm there. Mm. And, and how is the kind of culture of disability arts? We talk about the culture and then the funding situation first in, in London, because it is really the hub of the UK in that most things come and go from there. Perhaps a bit in the northeast, a bit in the northwest, but London is the heart, isn't it? Well, I think it's floundering, to be honest. And it's because there's been so much push for assimilation, integration, and I'm sick of hearing those words. You know, as you know yourself, disability arts was a political and a cultural movement. You know, it was about shaping our identities and actually throwing it in the faces of non-disabled people who didn't want to know. They don't want to hear about disabled people. They don't want to witness disabled people in positions of power or creating cultural motifs and splashing it right across the walls around you. Mm. You know, disability arts, if you like, has become very diluted in certain areas. So, So what's the problem with assimilation? For me... It means that we have to make compromises mm. and too many compromises to fit mm. in. Well, why are we trying to fit in? Mm. We didn't create the agenda in the first place. Give mm. us the positions of power and we'll show you what the different shapes could look like. Mm. I don't want to be a round peg in a square-shaped hole. Mm. And they're pretty square, they're cubic. <laughs> so so given, given that, and you say it's been... it's diluted and whatever the disability arts in london is that partly because of the funding system funding people partly it's the funding system partly it's because new disabled artists coming through don't have the same experiences as us oldies and um and i say us oldies because it's the same old faces actually regurgitated around disability arts time and again and we need to see new blood coming through we really really do and Mm. step aside and kind of share that stage or share that position of power on the ways in you know Mm -hmm. but i think it's become diluted because a lot of younger disabled people just don't have the same experience to fight against you know they're not they don't have the same concerns largely Uh, and so what what do you mean by that is it because their lives are much better much more equal much more they can access more things or what i think that's a popular belief but Mm. i don't think it's necessarily true right across the board what do you think's more accurate description of the problem I think that on the one hand, you've got younger disabled people who necessarily uh, might not necessarily have been through um, the residential system in quite the same way. You know, they're not necessarily all raised in Leonard Cheshire homes and have got something to fight against. 
that made me think of Lawrence Clark immediately. If you're there, <laughs> Lawrence, thanks. You did what you could. Um, yeah, you, so you've got a, young, a lot of young people saying, um, actually, I don't know what the fight's all about. We're cool. Mm, mm. We're happy with our lives. Uh, and do you actually believe that they are? Or is it that they've been completely depoliticised, like most people in contemporary society? Well, I would agree with you. I think there's, um, you know, I've got a serious worry, and you could put it down to my own impairment and say, yeah, Julia, you're paranoid. Paranoia's healthy. But I do have a serious worry that we've all been brainwashed. Mm. I can't believe that we've got absolutely no oomph in our political will to fight back about what... Complete erosion of civil rights everywhere you look, and it's like... Only in a time of peace could they get away with this, because we've been lulled into this false sense of security that... We're all right. We're in a democracy. Mm. Mm. Democracy. <laughs> <laughs> but just just bringing it slightly back to disabled people, because I agree with you. But is it is it a case to argue that dis- disabled people actually that they they they're in a in a kind of uh, a dichotomy in that we do have more kind of legislative equality than ever before. Yeah. But most of us suffer greater threats to our being than ever before at the same time. For example, most of us are not born through terminations and abortions and that kind of thing. Mm. On the one hand, so mm. like my impairment, spina bifida down syndrome, equality by and large doesn't apply to us because we're never going to exist. Mm. And so the depoliticisation of disabled people in that situation is, is quite scary for the future of disabled people. Well, let alone disability art. I think that's a scary argument you're putting forward there. And, you know, how do you depoliticise people who aren't even born yet? Mm. I want to focus on those people who do make it through, mm. who are born and... But I they're not even aware of, of their brothers and sisters situation and and that when they say oh they're fine and often they are in their own environment but kind of politically we are in a very dark period for disabled people i agree with you i tell you what there was a guy that wheeled into my office in london disability arts forum not long before i'd left and um he said i want to get in on your network and i've heard you can help and i said fine i said well as a disabled artist myself you know i'll recommend certain fast tracks but what is it you want and he said, first of all, I'm not disabled. Mm. And I'm staring into the face of a young, blonde-haired guy who's probably had it good, you know, in lots of ways. He's a middle-class, privileged position, but he uses a wheelchair. Mm. Doesn't want to be called disabled. Mm. So I go, oh, sorry, I stand corrected. And I use my language on purpose, you know. And uh, he goes, yeah, I don't choose that word. So I said, OK, well, how do you refer to yourself? And he says, uh, pissed off. Mm. So I shot. I gave him Ben Cove's work. Do you remember that mm-hmm. beautiful piece of work that was put into the um, postal tri- strike exhibition and then was made into sixteen postcards? I remember. Ben Cove had that beautiful. Um, it was a brown sort of tiled um, etching. It, well, it was like an etching, but it was made actually with um, acrylics and scratchings and you know quite high relief stuff mm-hmm. with a wheelchair tipped back on the front of it and underneath pissed off mm, mm. great <laughs> gave it to him I said any comment and he went no, I don't like brown <laughs> it was really hard to get through to this guy actually but we did find a couple of kind of um, places to meet and build bridges in the end but he just didn't want to know about disability arts mm. just wanted the funding wanted access to opportunities and how, how prevalent is that do you think because I, I think there are a lot of disabled artists uh, often quite well known who are almost in denial of, of, of their impairment or their, dis- their disability identity, let alone their impairment. That's another issue entirely. And, and, but often they are used to access money that should be for the more politicised kind of disability are. And that they're getting the best of both worlds. So they're not being disabled, but they're getting the disability money. I know, I know. It's called passing, isn't it? <laughs> That's yeah, not I'm what I'd call it. Very but, uh, <laughs> cynical, very <laughs> cynical. But I think it's quite prevalent, actually, quite widespread. You know, there are a lot of sort of non-politicised disabled people who would not identify as disabled people, so how dare, dare I, you know, lump them together in that category at this mm. moment in time? Mm. But they would be the first to rush at it when the funding's there, mm. you know. Mm. And, and what you were talking about, uh, the problem of assimilation, is that not affecting individuals in that they do deny who they are because they want to be seen as normal and taken seriously in the kind of normalised mainstream art world. And to some extent, if you are 
a disability artist. The mainstream doesn't take you seriously. Mm. Would you say that's true? I think that's true. I think, you know, very often if you're perceived as somebody who's come from disability arts world, you're swept aside as if, oh, well, that's just a voice from the ghetto. We've done the ghettos. Mm-hmm. Well, it wouldn't be so bad if they had, but that's another question. No, but that's a perception. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I remember, and I'm going to say this on radio, and Matt, please forgive me if you never wanted this leaked, but <laughs> here I am. Um, there was a report that came straight back to us from Channel 4 of um, they have these producers' meetings where the producers get together and they talk about programming and they talk about, you know, the next few seasons ahead of time. Um, and somebody presented a very good program proposal mm. it had matt's name on it mm. they said no no we've done matt fraser <laughs> <laughs> well i'd say they've done matt fraser as well but i, I mean i'd say that in a different way <laughs> well i think that's outrageous i really no, do it's I like agree. is he not allowed to live as an artist any further than the couple of programs he's been perceived as um, mm. kind of mm. being all over well, well in a way he was tarnished by that kind of politicized idea of, of disability art wasn't he in the eyes of the mainstream that's, that's what, what you mean saying. yeah and, and that's the tragedy of it, and that's the uh, the inequity and the injustice of it as well. Yeah, yeah. But I also think that they think, oh, we've had one guy with short arms. Well, that's Matt Fraser, isn't it? Mm. You know, that's all he can do mm. is a guy with short arms. Mm. So what do you think about the idea in, say, broadcasting of mainstreaming? So they want disabled people in mainstream things as ordinary people. Is that a problem? What do you mean, ordinary people? Uh, well, that's part of the problem I would have it is by saying, you know, what do you mean? You know, you're just talking fantasy. But what they mean is as almost as non-disabled people, as disabled people. Like Sandy and Crossroads. Yes. And that's what that's what the main broadcasters now want. So they have a quiz show, one of them's in a wheelchair, but it's not about them being in a wheelchair. It's not about them doing anything political or... Well, you see, I'm not knocking that if we're creating opportunity that means mm. people can butter their bread at the end of the day. Mm. But actually, that doesn't say anything about the world of a disabled person today in 2007. Mm. So mm. we're still ignoring the reality of our lives, if you see what I mean. So, so what you're saying is, is you'd want both? Yeah, absolutely. Both mm. and some. Mm. There's still more. There's, there's areas we haven't even examined, you know, because, mm. I mean, I hasten to say, I think that we have got stuck inside our machinations around do we need to be doing the medical model do we need to be doing the charity model can we get away from the charity model please please and uh, we're stuck in a kind of old version of the social model and we need to move on mm. Mm. you know there's a cultural model a political cultural model but we have to accept that a lot of people don't share our I suspect yours and mine politics are pretty close actually mm -hmm. so we can cosy on up there but there'll be other people that find that way too frightening and way too left of Trotsky mm. <laughs> So how did you get into that notion of politicised uh, cultural practice? Because it's not, and I don't just mean disability, I mean kind of left-wing, on your website you talk about comrades, that kind of thing. You know, so you are, where does that come from in you? Um, I think it, I mean, come and see pigtails, I have to say. I think it comes from my family background. Mm. Um, my father was a trade unionist, you know, he was kind of head foreman and his... Um, uh, shop steward in days kind of thing when he was working at the yard, shipping yard, camelades. Mm. Um, my mother is just feisty, always mm. been feisty. Mm. Now, they didn't get married till I was 12 because they'd been hounded out of their communities because he's Catholic and she's Protestant. Mm. And uh, Irish extraction? Yes, yeah. yes. Well, certainly my father's side. Anyway, my mother's side are Irish and Scottish, mm -hmm. you know, so even worse, you know, she's probably mm. straight from King Billy. Mm. William of Orange, for those of you who need to do your Googling tonight. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, um, so, I mean, I learnt about conflict around the dinner table whenever we made it to the dinner table. You know, there were always rows in our house. Mm. So I learnt to be politically aware quite early on. And also we were treated very differently because of that intermarriage and because we weren't allowed in the Catholic Church. My father had been excommunicated because he had five children born out of wedlock. But he was a believer. He was a believer, yeah, absolutely. Mm. He would always say, this is purgatory on earth, but I will one day be absolved. <laughs> Live in hope, if that's yeah. what they believe. Right, whatever. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, so, yes, I was always an outsider among outsiders, and two of my sisters are disabled. My older sister, just older than me, has spina bifida. So I was always raised with a kind of physical difference as part of the culture of our family. That's just who mm. we are. Mm. You know, and mm. I think that informs your 
kind of the breadth of your thinking, but also you've every breath, really. Mm. And because you got involved in political theatre when you sort of were a teenager, a bit older than that? Pretty early on, I think, yeah. I mean, I wrote my first play when I was 14. It's called A Sense of Freedom, and that was before Jimmy Boyle made it out of Barlini Prison. Mm. Um, he later wrote something called um, The Hard Man and then A Sense of Freedom. But, yeah, my sense of freedom was a 20-minute conversation between Bessie Braddock, who was the first feminist to burn her bra on a street corner in New York, mm. and Malcolm X. Mm. And um, I decided I wanted to be Malcolm X. Mm. So I blacked up. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> I was that black and white minstrel. Blacked up and I played Malcolm X in this performance. And, of course, all the black kids at school thought I was a right prat. So I learned about racism quite early on. <laughs> My own. <laughs> So, so how old are you then? I'm forty-seven. You're forty-seven. Similar age to me. A bit, I'm a bit younger, but not much. So, does it does it depress you then to see how? Uh, because you know, I understand that politicised background. My father was a trade unionist and a shop steward in, in in factories. It was in Surrey, but it was still that kind of socialist leaning and whatever. How how depoliticised so many young people are today. God, or, or, or are they politicised? Do you see them as being Well, I was just going to say, I don't think they're politicised at all in many ways. And I, if there's any young people listening in, and please God, I hope you're out there still, um, and listening and tuning in, I would say that I'm generalising because there are some really interesting, very young voices coming through politics nowadays. However, um, generally speaking, I think we're seeing the sort of very complacent, individualist... Um, selfish backlash that has been the kind of legacy of the Thatcher years mm. the very scary Thatcher years mm. Mm. I, I think you're being very uh, you're letting off the 10 years of labour far too easily in my view on that one as well because I think they're I think, well I think they've continued I, it well, what exactly. makes you think they're different than the Tories well agree but I think the Labour have been worse in the sense that by carrying it on and not providing an alternative, they legitimated the previous 10 years. Listen, I um, have to say something. Mm. I have got nothing good to say about the current Labour Party. And as for Gordon Thatcher, who very swiftly, and what, three months in office, and then he was cosying up to the, the original theft of our milk, <laughs> suckling from the breast of... Attila the Hun herself. I don't want you holding back. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so just changing it slightly, because you were also in a punk band, is that right? Yeah, I was, yeah. <laughs> 1977! <laughs> yeah, the plague. And and you were the singer or what? Do you play instruments? Actually, no, I, no, I don't play instruments. I torture instruments. <laughs> <laughs> if you've been raised with an instrument of torture as your symbol of worship, then... <laughs> You learn the hard way, really. I play the bower on the Irish drum, mm. and I used to play that in a Cayley band, but I came to the Cayley band after discovering that actually I really didn't like people spitting at me when I was on stage. Mm. It made me feel very aggressive. Mm. So punk worked for me in its anger and its energy, but I didn't like all that potential hepatitis right in my face. Mm. You know, people were really into spitting at you and big old gobs. Oh, I didn't like it. <laughs> 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 but I started off as their dancer, actually, in the back in line. Mm. Yeah, because mm. um, oh, I used to get called hot legs. That's a long story. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, started off as a dancer and I thought, I don't like this. I feel like a twat. <laughs> <laughs> I probably will have to edit out the word twat, actually. Uh, <laughs> I felt very dodgy. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so uh, what else was I going to say? I've got lots written down here. So, did you move into becoming a social worker? Oh, did you hear about this? <laughs> this was hysterical. Um, I was not long out of psychiatric hospital, and um, the psychiatrist there had said to me, look, you know, we think you're a bit sensitive for theatre, so probably a good idea if you went into something in the caring <coughs> profession. Have you thought of drama therapy? Mm. So I thought I'd go off and train as a drama therapist. And admittedly, I'd lost a hell of a lot of confidence in myself. And I thought maybe they were right. In fact, I believed everything they told me. The drugs were great. So I went off to St Albans and I trained as a drama therapist for a couple of years. Um, I never registered as a drama therapist, I have to say. There's something very arty-farty about it that doesn't quite sit with me. But... All of the structures I learned, I learned a hell of a lot about psychiatry and psychology and the systems and processes there. I learned a lot about group 
power. And I learnt a lot about that kind of really intrusive power of our last bastions of social control. Anyway, during that time, I applied to be a residential social worker in a halfway house for people with mental health issues. And I thought I'd be the best person, really, because I had my own mental health issues and because I'd spent such a long time in and out of psych at that point. Um, So I got the job. Well, I was offered the job anyway. But on the day I was due to start, I got um, a handwritten letter slipped under my front door. They didn't even have the gall to put it, you know, through the post. They made sure it was hand-delivered. So I looked at it and I owned it and it said, um, we're terribly sorry that you've been unsuccessful in your application for this post. So I thought, well, that's a complete nonsense. I'd already been for the Christmas meal, sorted out the staff rotor, all of that stuff they do to induct a new person on board. So I went into work armed with the original letter saying how successful I was in my application and went and challenged their reality. And they sent me away from the office, but they were very, very shamefaced and said, um, well, actually, you failed your um, medical. Well, I'd never been invited to attend a medical. I was in a a new town. I was in St Albans. I'd never lived there before. I'd moved for the work and I'd moved for the training course as a drama therapist. And I didn't know the GP. I'd registered with a local GP, as you're obliged to, but I'd never met them. And I discovered that... The occupational health team had written to my GP, like they do, and the GP had written back, this woman is fundamentally emotionally unstable and unfit for work. (laughs) And I thought, thank you. Mm. So I went down to, um, I mean, I only found this out because I went to see the GP and said, what on earth did you write? You've just lost me a job. So I threatened to take him to court and he shit himself because I was going to do him for negligence. You might have to edit that out as well. Yes, he was deeply troubled when he realised that I meant it when I said I was going to take him to court for negligence and dereliction of duty of care and that now my mental health condition was going to flare in the most florid way it could ever dream up because I was going to take his head off, basically. Mm. Um, I went to the local Communist Party. People might find that a very unusual route to take. (laughs) But I also went to the press, locally and nationally, and I went to what was then known as the National Council for Civil Liberties. And when, when are we talking about? What kind of year? 1985-86. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, not that... It's in our lifetime, Paul. In our lifetime. Yeah. And anyway, I was offered my job back and, and paid some hush money, basically. I didn't take the hush money, I have to say. Um, I wanted to scream it out. Actually, looking back, I should have should have taken the money and screamed. And screamed, <laughs> yeah. I always said that to Nabil Shaban as well, you know. He should have taken that money... Absolutely. ...and screamed at 10 Downing Street. Absolutely. Streets. Yeah. We have blood on our hands. That was a good moment. (laughs) So, yes, that politicised me overnight because I suddenly realised, actually, that a psychiatric record is one of the worst and most disabling things you can have when you're entering the job market. Mm, mm. So um, I learnt about the social model pretty swiftly. Mm. And and what did you... How long were you then as a residential social worker? Oh, I think I lasted... (laughs) didn't last very long, actually. I hated the place. The way they treated people, oh, my God... But I thought I was going to show my face and basically stir it up for them. Mm. And I was very out as being a mental health service user. And I was very out about, as soon as I got there, the, the staff team said, oh, why didn't you start on January the 4th? And I said, oh, because I was failed in medical. I was never invited to attend. Can I talk about that in the staff team meeting? Mm. And they were like, oh, uh, uh, well, uh, maybe not. Um, did you need to talk to somebody about that? I go, no, 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 but we've got a newsletter. I could write about it. So, I mean, I stirred it up good, Stan. I lasted another six months there and then I got bored and left. Mm. So when did you throw yourself fully into the kind of disability art culture? Well, I started off around the sort of survivor movement. Mm. And it was during the era when disabled people were saying... Just tell us a bit what the survivor movement is. OK, oh, yeah, yeah, good is, point, good a, point. A lot of listeners won't. Well, in 1985, they had a conference called Mental Health 2000, which always made me laugh. It was in Coventry, actually, and... Um, I thought, yeah, you know, if they're serious about working alongside people whose reality have been profoundly damaged and reality has been profoundly challenged, really, through Mm. psychiatry most times, Mm -hmm. a lot of people at that conference would be on meds and they'd be thinking, wow, man, Mm. we've tripped forward to the year 2000. It's the millennium. Here we are. God, I wish I'd been there. But Peter Campbell and... Pete Shaughnessy and a lot of others at that conference seized the microphone because it was led by professionals and those with the shoulder pads of power 
whose careers have been built on our backs, basically, as mental health service users. Anyway, they seized the conference and they took the mics and said, you know, we are the survivors of your treatments. We are the survivors of your institutions. Some of us did not survive. There are silent graves, mass graves, you know, in the grounds of every psychiatric hospital in this country. Mm. We need to speak and we're taking over this platform. And, of course, the psychiatrists present were really, you know, this is very inflammatory. What do you mean, survived? Why, we've done the best we can. Yes, and killed an awful lot of us. <laughs> done the best you can, mate. So the term survivor was coined at that conference, mm. and it fast-mushroomed into a movement with the likes of Frank Bangay, Joe Bidder, um, Pete Shaughnessy, um, Peter Campbell at the helm, and women like Louise Pembroke, um, Viv Landau, Rachel Perkins, etc., swiftly joined. And they created Survivor Speak Out, constituted it, got funding for it, and that was a campaign and organisation very swiftly, moved into Survivor's poetry, um, working in hospitals, working in residential care spaces, working in so-called halfway houses where people like me are forbidden to work, and um, encourage people to work through the break, right in through the break, rather than talking about a breakdown, we're talking about breakthroughs, and politicise mental health service users in this country over the following few years that followed that mm. 85 conference. Mm. What's the difference between that and therapy? Therapy. Mm. Therapist. The <laughs> rapist. Right. The therapist is always in charge. Mm. Um, it's useful up to a point. Therapy comes from the Greek word therapia, meaning to heal. Now, there's a number of ways you can heal yourself, actually, but a therapist often fosters dependency because effectively they reparent in you. I think some of the best shrinks are those who stand firmly in your corner while watching you box, but you fight your own corner. Mm. And, 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 and that's at the core of the survivor's kind of mentality. Yeah, yeah. We want control of our own lives and, and it, we want control of our own treatments as well. And is it still a strong kind of movement? It's more underground now because there was a lot of infighting, politics had changed and... You know, I'm going to scrub dirty linen in public if I say what happened to Survivors Speak Out, but they had to come into the 21st century, basically, politically. Mm. A lot of women have been left out. A lot of black people have been marginalised. And it's like, you can't continue like that because actually you're reproducing the same kind of abuse of power that the oppressors have given us. Mm. 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 But to some extent, and it's not my view because I don't know, but you've got to let, have you got to let some people be where they are because it's, it's the only way they can do it, even if that excludes others? And shouldn't you facilitate the others to, to develop their own voices in their own way in other groups and then try and merge them later on? Do you know what I mean? No, say more. No. You know... Basically, you're saying it was largely a white middle class thing. It wasn't necessarily middle class. White, white, then. but definitely white, white, and definitely jobs for the boys. You know, and and in that era, it 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 would have found it difficult to be any other than that. But and it's not just in that era, Paul. Mm. It's still like that now, mm. which is why we had the Women and Mental Health Forum. Mm. We had. Um, there's a lesbian forum, there's now a black forum, mm. you know, so there have been mushrooms sprung off in other directions, but the actual core has imploded because the nice white boys who began it actually couldn't quite open up mm. and mm. create enough channels for there to be a strong, integrated, oh, I'm using that word again, um, collective mm. that cross bridges through all sorts of communities. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't want women in for a start. No, I'm with you, and I think it's essential that they're not left to be what they are. But but some people would argue that they need to be, and you've got to start these other things. And that multiplicity, that kind of plurality of of experiences and groups rather than just one central thing is always as good a thing as having a kind of an integrated whole in the centre. Well, sadly, that's the line they took, mm. that they needed to continue as they were, mm. and... I mean, they tried desperately to open out and mm. make it more um, women-friendly, user-friendly, that actually reflects the 57% of black people and minority ethnic people banged up at any one time. Mm. It's both health, healthy representation of um, statistics mm. for um, black and minority ethnic people in this country. 
isn't it? Mm-hmm. 57%. But, um, yeah, that's why it imploded and collapsed, and that's why the underground movement that still is Survivor Speak Out is a very small group of people with no mm-hmm. funding. Mm-hmm. And that's a shame. That is a shame, because funding is essential, isn't it? It is, but also change is essential. Mm. No, I'm with you, because to some extent, I don't think you should allow centralised organisations of nice white boys... And but equally, if you leave them alone, they'll all implode anyway, and so they'll all destroy themselves eventually. Yeah. Well, I, I worry about survivors' poetry because it's mm. going down the same route. Mm. You know, I know. I hope they're listening because they'll flock to the phone and tell you that you know I am one of the dragons in the den, mm. planting landmines for them to collapse <laughs> over at any moment. But actually. They really needed a shake-up. It had become institutionally sexist, institutionally racist, mm, mm, you know, mm. through the structures from the board all the way through mm. the way they delivered their programming and activities. Mm. So you're, you're a poet as well? Yeah. Yes. A ranting poet. <laughs> a ranting poet. Yes, well, that's the way <laughs> I was described recently. <laughs> I wasn't aware I was ranting, but apparently so. And that was recently. Yeah. Oh, that's a bit unfortunate. You just gave him the book and said, read it and you won't hear my voice ranting. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good idea. I never thought of that. <laughs> and so you've produced, you're, you're quite well published as, as a poet, yes? Yeah, yeah. And where can people get to read your poetry? They can have a look at any of the Survivor Press stuff, um, from Darkness into Light, Underneath the Asylum Tree, Fresher Than Green, Brighter Than Orange... Um, all still available through Survivor's Poetry. I don't know where else you get them now. And where is... Has they got a website or...? A They've got a website still, and Bickerton Road, where they're based in N19 in London. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also Google them there. So if you put in Survivor's Poetry, it should come up, the website? It should come up immediately, yeah. Mm. Um, I've also had stuff in Blood Axe and Women's Press um, and also Women and Mental Health, but it's hard to get hold of any of those publications now, the Women and Mental Health stuff because they collapsed and but have you got copies of all of this yeah and so wh- when are you going to put a collection together do you know i never thought about it and put, it put your money web. where your mouth is put, i'd say put it on the web for free that's what i do i put everything i do on the web for free well when i've got some time i might devote some energy to my website which is suffering from tired website syndrome mm, mm. and 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 i see also on your a couple of other so I won't. I'm rambling. I'm just. What am I going to say? So, how important is the notion of sexuality in your? Because you're a lesbian, yes. Yes. And how important is that in your identity as a disabled artist? And how does it affect your work? Well, isn't that funny? I. I does it? I it, don't. You could oh, say it, no. No, it runs right the way through my right. work. Of course, it does. But I think sexuality is important to everybody, whether mm. you're a lesbian, whether you're transgendered, whether you're straight as a die god love you and help you um but how important is it to me as a disabled artist i'll tell you what's important to me as a disabled artist Mm -hmm. i think each of those movements the queer movement whether you call yourself lesbian gay bisexual transgender that's your business um it's also very political cultural business nowadays that all of those movements suffer from an obsession with the body beautiful Mm -hmm. and i believe that disability art suffers the same thing. Mm. I don't see uh, or witness enough work coming through where we're challenging that notion of we've still got to be pretty, we've still got to be um, leaning towards the right line if we're doing dance, you know, like the classical aesthetic body, um, still leaning towards the Greek athlete. Athlete? No, athlete. (laughs) Um, even when I watch Matt Fraser sometimes, who, when he acts, he leads with his penis. If I watch Matt on stage and he's totally into, um, I mean, he's a master of martial arts, but it is something fueled by the super crit mentality. Mm. My body's got to be bigger, better, best. Uh, I can see that, but if society or work in mainstream culture, that's what you have to do, isn't it? And, and yeah, sadly, you do. I mean, I've watched my sister do it. And if you don't, you die. Yeah. You don't get work. I know, I'm just thinking about my sister, Denise, who has spina bifida. I mean, she has that super crit mentality. She went off and she trained as a beauty therapist. Mm. And she was one of the first cases for the DDA, Martinez, who took a multinational perfume company um, 
and talking to the cleaners and shook them down. She actually accepted an out-of-court settlement, and I wish she hadn't, really. Mm. Um, I wish she'd gone the whole hog with them, because it would have been hilarious. I've always said she should have been done for assault anyway, squirting innocent passers-by with some potent <laughs> shite that was made through ICI. <laughs> Disabled more people on the planet than any other industry. <laughs> but she swans around in a Mazda MX-5, you mm. know, bright red sports car with a black soft top, on mobility. Mm. You know, and it is part of that. She's superwoman, and you can't challenge that in her. That's the way she but lives her life. Isn't that what society wants from us? Probably, and that worries me. I'm reading a book at the moment called Reclaiming the Culture of Slow, mm. and I really like the theories in it because mm. we are challenging... The whole of our kind of Western culture is bigger, better, bigger, better, fast, fast. Want it now, want it, want it. You, you know, the whole thing is spiralling out of control. We're going to kind of short circuit and all. Mm. I love that. The theories of spontaneous human combustion. That's what's going to happen. So uh, do you get on with your sister? Because <laughs> well, you obviously have slightly different political we've views. We've got completely different and political views. And I suspect views. that goes from who you vote for to every single thought you ever have. Even what football teams we support, <laughs> I tell you. And that's the biggest riot in our house, which football uh, you team support you Trad support. You support Tranmere, I presume. I do not. I support Liverpool, thank you. <laughs> and she supports Everton. And near the twain meet. Someone has to. Yeah, exactly. Better her than you. Yes, exactly. Thank uh, you. But we do get on. I'm a lifelong Liverpool fan myself. So. Ah, well, bless you, brother. <laughs> oh, I remember Bill Shankly. The, the golden days. <laughs> so, Listen, nobody can follow Bill Shankly. You show me a football manager who is fit to touch his hem. I agree. And he had a sense of humour. Yeah. more than anybody else nowadays. Uh, so coming back to your family, because I find that interesting that you... So how, how severely impaired is your sister? Is she a wheelchair user or walks on crutches or what? No, she uses crutches sometimes. Um, she's got something called spina bifida occulta, which means that a lot of it is hidden, mm. actually. But she's got one foot much smaller than the other, one leg smaller than the other, mm. and um, undivided attention. Mm. So how did that affect you as a child? Oh, God, she was a bully. Mm. She was a bully. Well, she's just older than me. She's 12 and a half months older. She could have been 10 years younger than you. She'd have been a bully. Yeah, whatever. No, it was the calipers. She loved digging into me with the calipers on. It gave me a good kick in whenever uh, she could. And I presume because she was allowed to as well. And, and you got the blame. No, she got away with it. She was sneaky That's with it. That's what I mean. She was allowed to. And you got the blame if it ever went. No, I tell you, got the blame. <laughs> she had an imaginary friend called Charlie. And <laughs> he always got the blame. I used to think, who is this poor Charlie? I've never seen him. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Anything that went wrong, it was our Charlie. But um, Denise is only five foot and I'm five foot seven. Mm. So one day I just realised I'd shot up and I was much bigger than her. And I hit her back only the once, mm. but I've never had to touch her again. You could head bar now, couldn't you? I'll do what? Well, <laughs> no, I'd give myself some kind of neck whiplash, wouldn't I? <laughs> no, I could probably... Um... And did she go to mainstream school? Um, for some of the time and then she went to private school, mm. you know. Mm which my mother slogged for. And then she got kicked out of the private school for... I nearly said the word twatting again. <laughs> she got kicked out of private school for disruptive behaviour, is all we will say. Defending the honour of the family. <laughs> so are your parents still alive? My mother is. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, and what kind of influences, say, your mother had on your life? My father had far more influence than my mother. Mm. Um, yeah, my mother's quite an interesting character, actually. She was in denial most of her life, and she still is now. She's kind of... Denial of? Oh, reality. Mm. You know, she spent her time watching B-movies and mm. swore that she looked like Betty Davis. And mm. um, what was the other one that was her favourite? Joan Crawford. No. Oh, no. Oh, no, you never say them in the same sentence. Well, you and your sister could remake whatever happened to Baby Jane, couldn't you? Yes, and that's what Pig Sister was all about. <laughs> it really was, I swear to God. It's, it's actually modelled on whatever happened to Baby Jane at some level. It's about two old dears in a care home, bitterly opposed to each other, at the end of this row of overstuffed chairs, with the TV constantly blaring, slightly out of reach. And from the beginning moments, it's mayhem. Because the dead nurse on duty has got to be killed by one of them. And did you imagine that it was your sister? <laughs> of course I did. <laughs> oh, I had a field day. <laughs> so you're telling me then that you don't drive? 
given your attack on your sister's mobility car. I do drive, of course I do, <laughs> but I don't drive a red sports car with a black soft top. What are you for, driving? What are you driving? Let's, get a, let's get a picture of you. Yeah, what are okay. you um, it's a second-hand Ford Puma. A rubbish car, basically. Actually, it's not bad. <laughs> well, it's got sticky fingers all over it from the kids, you know. <laughs> so you also do voice work. You're a voice work facilitator. Yeah. Tell us about that. Do you know what started me off on that game? Um, I was working at Harperbury Hospital. It was then called Harperbury Hospital for the Mentally Subnormal. Mm. And where's that? What a great title that is. It is. In Hertfordshire. It was a great big 2,000-bed Victorian hospital with its own grounds and huge high walls all around. And I set up women's groups in the Lock-in Ward 7 and also in what they called the Social Education and Assessment Centre. And the only way I could get these women's groups started up was to say that they were knitting circles. Mm. Well, I've never knit in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't even cast on, whatever that is. I could probably cast me nets off the side of my dad's fishing boat, but that's about it. And um, I got it by Sister Mary Francis, who was the nursing ward kind of sister on that particular section. And as long as we appeared to be running a knitting circle, we got away with murder. And what I was doing was supporting the women to rehearse what they wanted to say to their psychiatrists, to their CPNs or equivalent. And um, there was no such thing at that time as a mental health review tribunal and some of these women's notes had not been looked at for years and years mm-hmm. so there was a woman there called Seely who had been in for about 30 years for nicking a bicycle for bringing shame on her family her father had literally presented her to the hospital and said take her in she's yours mm-hmm. and dumped her there and um, so she'd been in since she was nine for nicking a bike and I would say she probably had some kind of learning disability, but she was totally institutionalised by the time I was working with her. Mm. There were other women who'd had children out of wedlock whose notes on their medical charts said that they were morally deficient. And I thought, who made these judgments on people? You know, who chooses to say that about another human being? White men, primarily. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And shrinks, usually. So I started doing voice work... um, which was basically getting people to use their own voices. These were women who barely spoke. You know, they would say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, three bags four, you know, if required. Um, Very pleased and thank you. Until sometimes they would, you know, have kind of rages, outbursts, temper, and then you'd hear a lot. And so I used voice work to get people to tell their own stories so that they felt that they could... um, I even let them see their own papers, you know, their own what was written about them in some contexts, um, to tell their own dreams, what they wanted to do. Mm. I mean, I was only there two and a half years, but we worked, God, twice a week with two particular groups, um, four women who eventually got out, and about three years after I'd left, they got out and they were in a sort of halfway house at the edge of the grounds of the hospital. Mm. But that was a huge move forward. These were women who didn't even know how to handle money. Or so explain voice work slightly a bit. What do you do? It's about breathing and confidence building. I get people to use their voices, um, literally to talk, to speak, to tell stories, to mm. speak about their own experiences. And for some women, they wanted to learn to sing. So we sang together, you know. And I started in a very political way with voice work. I don't know whether you've ever heard um, Frankie Armstrong sing. Mm, She's a very political voice worker, but she started from um, the folk scene, Mm -hmm. English folk scene Mm -hmm. in this country with the likes of Ewan McCall, Peggy Seeger, people like that, you know, who also have a very political backdrop. And Mm. they started the political song network and what have you, red and green songs that came later on. Um, but I went to some of Frankie's workshops and that really inspired me to start bringing more singing and songs into the kind of work I was doing in the hospitals at that time because it was great getting people to rehearse their case conferences but they wanted to play and have fun as well Mm. and there was nothing more scary than having to think about the future when if that meant letting go of the hospital and all it had meant if you'd been in for over 10 years and some of them 30 years then it was a very terrifying prospect to think about 
saying, yes, I want out Mm -hmm. and imagining a life ahead at all. Mm. So we brought all sorts of folk songs in that told stories of, you know, um, rebels, fairies, wild people, (laughs) you know, left, right and centre. And and you you use that as well on, on the Skyros holidays? Skiros. Skiros. Yeah, it's it was set up in. Oh God, it's going to be thirty next year. Mm. And you're still doing it. I didn't do it this year, but I am still involved in the company because I set up a project in Cuba and I set up a project in Thailand. Uh, no, I didn't set up the Thailand project, but I was part of it. I set up a project in Tobago. And are, are they very politicised things, or are they much more... They started off very politically, but mm. now, I mean, it's essentially a family business that has grown very, very big. It's a victim of its own success, really. But they were started off by um, a guy called Yanis Andrakopoulos, who is very much a socialist. Um, mm. He's a philosopher, he's a political writer. He used to write for Athenica. He used to write for another political journal based here. And he was a political exile from his own hometown, home country. Um, couldn't go back to Greece for a long time. It's a big court case pending. Um, he's allowed back nowadays, of course he is. And his father came from Skiros. So he had a house on Skiros, which is a little island in the Sporades on the northeast. And his then wife was Dina Gluberman. And uh, Dina came from the kind of politicised um, social, socialist, Zionist camps. And um, I have to say... She does not believe in the state of Israel and she does not believe that the Palestinians should be bombarded out of their own territories. Mm. Um, She's a politicised being as well. Mm -hmm. And she was raised in Brooklyn, New York, and her family were refugees from um, settlements across those Mm. areas now known as Israel, Mm -hmm. etc. Um, so between the two of them, they wanted to create something that was an alternative way of living and they wanted to set up communes or communities. So they created two-week holidays for people who had radically different ways of thinking than the sort of living accommodation we had here. And they decided if you took people out into a Greek island, take them out of their um, original home places and get them to think together about how to live in a different way of life, that they could perhaps think about future communities differently. Mm-hmm. And that's how it began. Mm-hmm. And then various training courses were on offer because people actually got more demanding of what kind of holiday they wanted. They didn't just want to sit around and talk <coughs> politics and that. They wanted to try a different way of life, mm-hmm. but they wanted to learn new skills as well. So the land that we'd taken over, we had orchards on, we kept animals on um, in the early days. You know, I've been involved since 1984. Um, God, in fact, I was interviewed in 83, so you could argue I've been involved since 83, which is scary. It's been the longest commitment in my life, actually, but if you'd asked me then, would I still be involved, I'd have laughed at you, because mm. it seems so crackpot. And I went directly from doing all that work in Harperbury Hospital, mm. I'd reached burnout of some kind, and I read this job advert in the listings at the back that said um, they were looking for a creative arts worker to set up a new community in Greece. And I thought, well, I can't work at this hospital anymore. I'm completely depressed. Mm. I can't set the people free, which is what I wanted to do. One flew over the cuckoos. Mm. Um, So I went to Greece. I went from the sublime to the ridiculous. And I spent three months setting up this arty-farty commune in Skiros. Mm. (laughs) And it's still going, still flourishing. Yeah. But is, is it a bit more touristy now? Yeah. Very much so. I mean, it's kind of tries to adhere to the original philosophy it was um, set up with. But, mm. yeah, it's become a very commercial enterprise. Mm. And so what do you do for fun? That's a very good question. I make mischief on stage for fun. Mm. That's what I do. You know, I mean, I love doing the disability arts cabarets. I love comparing. I love playing with people in the audience. And I love writing plays. And are you writing a new play at this very moment? Yes, I am. And what's that about? It's called Crossings. It's the story, um, two separate stories are found on me, jaunts, actually. One of them are found in, um, oh, forgive me if there's any Maoris out there, if I can't pronounce this right, Wakahiti Museum in Mm -hmm. um, Wellington. Mm -hmm. And it's the story of an Irish woman who went to Liverpool and then from Liverpool got, um, she stowed away to New Zealand as um, she cross-dressed 
as a man because they weren't accepting women over 40 because obviously whether they had childbearing hips or not, they weren't seen as fruitful. Mm -hmm. So she went and she um, pretended to be her brother or one of her brothers anyway because she did um, find safe passage eventually with her brother. And so hers is one of the stories of crossings. And the other one was um, an American woman, uh, well, a woman who went to America anyway, also from Liverpool. And she's another one who cross-dressed to get there. So I decided I'd write this comedy called Pirates in Gents' Pants. And um, it's a bit obvious, really, but I thought somebody in the funding office might smile when they saw that title. Mm -hmm. But Crossings is the story of those two women um, stowing aboard a ship. And I really want to do the project on a ship. And I wanted to do it on the Royal Iris, which is this iconic ferry boat. Mm. But I've since heard this guy, James, who is clearly neither a Liverpool fan nor a resident of Liverpool at any point in his life, has let this ferry boat rot and the hull has got a huge hole in it down in Woolwich Dry Dock in London. So I can't use the Royal Iris. So anyone out there listening, if you know of a ferry boat, (laughs) please get in touch. (laughs) So do you ever go and watch Liverpool? No, I've never been to a football match in my life. I've watched it on the telly and I've watched it on the big screen. But my dad said people were pissing me pockets and it's always put me (laughs) off football matches. (laughs) did. Oh, well, that's a novel way of seeing it. <laughs> so uh, also on your website, and because and you've just mentioned it, is, is the cross-dressing and the, the drag element of, of your work. What would you describe that as? Hilarious. A hobby? <laughs> a hobby? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I've had such fun. I'll tell you what, it's been hilarious. Um, the reason I wrote Pigtails was very much to do with my relationship with my dad because he really wanted a son. And sadly, I had five girls, you know, and I was pig in the middle. Um, but he raised me as his son, partly because of his fantasy that I looked more like him and so I was the boy. Um, we are probably quite alike in lots of ways. But also because I was born at home. Because my mum's first two kids were disabled, she had a certain element of shame and guilt, and which I have to say she's come through the other side of, as most people do. But in them days, she felt that the hospitals had done that and they were responsible. Mm. So she was determined to have her third kid at home, and that was me. But um, I must have been in a bit of a hurry or something, because the midwife wasn't there when I arrived. So when they finally got the midwife up from the bingo hall and arrived into the room where my mum had had me... The umbilical was still attached and my dad was convinced I was a boy and of course he was a bit pissed. That was his favourite thing really, getting yeah. pissed. And um, he wouldn't have it that I was a female child until the midwife cut the umbilical cord and he went apeshit, you know. I mean, it's a popular story and it actually appears in pigtails as a kind of retail. But, um, yeah, it says much about our relationship really and I think that kind of informed who I was as a youngster because he always took me more seriously he treated me as his boy child Mm. and I used to dress in my dad's clothes I remember my mum telling me off for having my dad's clothes on when I think it was a social worker come round to visit and I was still wearing men's clothes around the house you know and I must have been 10 or something so God knows what they made of me but yeah I've always liked the power of men's clothes I mean it is it's a metaphor for power isn't it Mm. Can you see uh, me in a pink frock, Paul? <laughs> be honest now. A tutu. I can, but it would, I think that would probably be someone else's nightmare or dream. I'm not sure which. Yeah, you say, <laughs> I want to play with that. I am somebody's nightmare or dream. Am I? So how much of being a Liverpudlian has affected you? How much of a Liverpudlian are you, given that you live in Hackney? Well, I don't know anymore. I would love to have gone home, actually, to settle down and be near the Mersey again. I love Liverpool. Mm. I love that whole area of the Mersey side, you know. Mm. I'd love to be by that river. Um, and I spent half my life on it when I was a kid. You know, my dad lived on his boat and uh, that was my favourite time, was being on the boat with him. Mm. But I've gone far away from Liverpool. You know, my accent is virtually gone now. Some people would say, oh, you're all posh now. Mm. I mean, when I go... My, well, for my, a Liverpudlian, yes. Oh, yeah, my family are much stronger than me, mm. you know. Mm. Uh, apart from my mum, she's gone really telephone voice recently, mm. but we're not sure what's happening there. Cause Is she's... that because you only talked to her on the telephone? No, <laughs> it could be because she's totally absorbed in the B-movies and we're mm. not quite sure who she's watching at the moment, mm. you know. <laughs> so, imitates that. <laughs> but yeah, drag's been... Um, 
it's been a hobby and it's been very informative in my working day and my life's research. I decided to keep the drag on when I went to the local pub um, after a photo shoot for pigtails, actually. So it would have been about five years ago now. And I went for a laugh. But as I was driving along, it was really interesting the way people respond to you as a man when mm. they read you as male. Mm. And there were all sorts of things I learned about being male in the world that I never thought was possible. Like, all the men are quite aggressive, actually. I didn't realise that you got so much bristle on the streets. Mm. Um, and some men cruise you. Mm. I didn't know that either. And mm. very openly, you know, um, women back off with fear. I guess because I looked like a slightly odd man as well. They back even further away. Other women would spend too long looking at you and dally round you, you know. Um, it was a really interesting experience. Mm. And then, of course, I went into the local pub and pretended I was from the Inland Revenue and all hell was let loose. Um, it was a good disguise, I have to say, because the makeup had been done by a woman from Vogue magazine and she was shit hot. Mm. Sorry, she was very hot. <laughs> Actually, she was hot. She was a bit of a babe. <laughs> I'll take your word for that. Yes. <laughs> so I guess what I learnt about power and gender politics, just playing that role, taught me a lot about how men and how women move through the world around, alongside each other. We kind of bristle and it's definitely fight or flight stuff. Mm. You know, I'd like to say something stronger, but I can't. You'd have to edit it. <laughs> so where, where are you off to next? Well, after the Arena Theatre next Friday, Wolverhampton. Yep. yep. Um, I'm straight up to York for the Lesbian Arts Festival. Mm -hmm. And I've, you're doing pigtails at that? No, I'm not. No. Um, doing I'm doing else. a little piece there called I'm Your Man, um, which actually is inspired by pigtails. Um, and also an awful lot of leafleting to make sure people make... Northern Stage is the Tuesday and Wednesday directly after that, the 30th and 31st of October, up in Newcastle. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be fun because it's... Working alongside Arcadia as well, Vicky uh, Reffert Sinnott's gang. Mm. And we're doing two master classes for disabled actors, working on turning personal narrative into writing for the stage. Mm. So I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be exciting. And then after that, straight off to Belfast. Oh no, I'm going to Nottingham. Nottingham to the Courtyard Theatre and then to Belfast. Mm. With pigtails? Yeah. Yeah, all of that last little flurry there is pigtails. And so what what are you doing in Liverpool for 2008, the year of culture? I'm hoping, you see, to find this ferry boat, wherever it is out there, it'd be great if it was the Mountwood or the Overchurch. They were two ferry boats I remember I'll from take my your word for childhood. It. <laughs> um, and bring the production into Liverpool mm. on the water. Mm. be fabulous. Mm. That'll be crossings. <laughs> and then actually it's ferries across the Mersey, isn't it? It is indeed. I'd just like to thank Julie McNamara for being with us this afternoon and uh, wish her well with her tour of Pigtails. Thank you. <laughs>